Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. <laughs> Good morning. Our reading today is from 2 Peter chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 10 through 22. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, good morning. That's a tense text. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, thank you so much for your word and uh, how you speak to us to every, everything we need. Uh, sometimes words of comfort, sometimes words of challenge, uh, but always words of truth. And we, we thank you and praise you for that today. And uh, we would just ask now that you'd help me as I communicate, help uh, everyone else who's uh, both online and, and in this room uh, to listen as we listen, uh, that you would help us as we listen to understand, to apply, 
and to, to see what this means for us today, how, how it helps us follow Jesus more faithfully and truly. So we look to you now as our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many years ago, there was a, a famous ad campaign on television. Uh, it was sponsored by a group called the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. And if you are middle-aged or older, you almost certainly saw these commercials. You remember them well. Uh, the ad would uh, show an egg. Somebody would hold an egg or show an egg. And, and a voice would say, this is your brain. And then somebody would take that egg and, and crack it, or actually, they would actually they first they'd show a, a, a frying pan, and they'd say, this is uh, drugs. So this is your brain, this is drugs. And then someone would crack the egg into the frying pan, and it would start to pop and sizzle, and the voiceover would say, this is your brain on drugs. I don't know how effective the whole campaign was. I don't know if it actually changed anyone's behavior, but it was obvious what they were trying to do. They were trying to warn us, right? This... Uh, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. If you do drugs, your brain will be fried. That was the message. I remember getting that message when I was 10 years old. Oh, I don't want my brain to be, to be like that. Uh, I thought of those commercials this week as I was studying some more in uh, Second Peter. Uh, I thought of them because it seems to me that Peter is doing something a lot like that here in this letter, and especially in this chapter. He's doing a, something a lot like that. Uh, in chapter 1, he shows us what we have in Jesus. And you might remember the first few sermons, first couple of sermons in this series were very positive. We were looking at all these wonderful things we have in Jesus, all the blessings we have. And it's almost like Peter says, this is your soul. This is your soul on Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's almost the idea. And then we get into chapter two and there's like this shift in the tone. And, and it's like, he says, this is your soul when it gets fried on false teaching. Here's what happens when we let that stuff uh, into, our, into our hearts and into our churches. And so like the commercials, there's this strong sense of warning in, in this chapter. You don't want this, what we read about here, you don't want this to happen to you. That's the message. And so well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about protecting ourselves, because I really do think that's... Uh, I've actually wrestled with that some. What is Peter even trying to say here? Who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to Christians, and he's equipping us in how to protect ourselves from getting drawn astray, from getting drawn away. So, so we're going to talk today about how to protect ourselves uh, from false teachers. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 10 in this chapter. So uh, those of you who were here uh, last week, you know, if you're, you know if you're here this fall, you know we're doing a study in Second Peter. We'll actually also grab Jude, the little book of Jude, at the back end of this series because it, it nests very well with Second Peter. So we're studying these two books together. And so last week, we were already in this chapter some last week. And last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10. And we talked about how important it is to be alert. Right? So you have to be alert uh, for the danger of false teaching. And so we, we kind of did some definitions. We, we talked about what it is. What are we talking about when we talk about false teaching? And we even gave a definition. I, I said false teaching is, is any teaching that contradicts what is clearly taught in the Scriptures. Right? So we're not talking secondary doctrines where Christians of goodwill and, and faith in Jesus have kind of you know, disagreements. We're talking about uh, teaching that is clearly contradicts what is here in the scripture. And, and we drilled down on that a little more. We talked about both in terms of knowing what something uh, is false teaching by what it denies. And Peter talks about this. He says it denies uh, the master, right? Remember that verse? That's first Peter. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says in first Peter, he says, uh, they deny the master who bought them. 
So this whole idea of denying what the Bible teaches about Jesus, and then also by what they promote. He talked a lot about they promote sensuality, and they follow their sensuality. So promoting uh, behaviors and, 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 well, behaviors and actions that are clearly contrary to what the Scriptures teach. So that's what false teaching is. And then we also talked about why it's so dangerous. That was where we spent the rest of our time last week. What's the big deal? Uh, we asked. And it's a big deal. The problem is that false teaching deceives, it defames, and it destroys. And so it defames the gospel, it deceives people, and it destroys their lives. So with all that in mind, now we ask the question, well, how are we going to help ourselves? How are we going to protect ourselves from all that? Because we're not supposed to just kind of cross our fingers and hope for the best. Uh, it's, it's clear, the tone of this letter and also of Jude, that we're supposed to defend ourselves. So there's a lot of material here uh, in, in what Laura just read for us. And so I guess I wanted to say, I'm, I'm probably not going to answer every question. Because you know, some of these things in here are, are a little uh, obscure, a little bit difficult to understand. I'm going to do my very best to catch the major ones. But there's a little bit of a caveat here on the front end. Unless you want to stay till 1.30 this afternoon, uh, I might not answer a specific question you have. But I'm very happy to answer it afterwards. So if anybody wants to come up afterwards and say, yeah, but what about the, what does that mean in verse 17 or whatever? Um, I'm, I'm happy to try to engage with those. But, but I, I, part, of, part of what I do is try to kind of, you know, do the sifting. It's a little bit like you go to the kitchen and there's all the ingredients. You don't dump all the ingredients into a pot. Uh, you, you pick which ones you need for, for what, is, what you want to make. And so we're going to talk about defending ourselves today, because I do think that's the major point Peter's making here. And so I want to talk about four defenses. As I was studying through, um, and I actually treated this whole chapter as a unit this week. So as I look at verses 1 through 22, I think there are four ways we're supposed to defend ourselves from the things that Peter is telling us. Uh, defend ourselves from those who would come and, and promote false teaching about Jesus or who would promote things that the Bible tells us not to do. So four, uh, four defenses. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So number one, defense number one, uh, our first defense is to know what they're like. Right? So, so we talked about what's false teaching, but Peter's also going to spend a good bit of time on helping us know, identify the teachers themselves. So what are they like? Because you can't protect yourself from an enemy that you can't identify. You need to be able to say, okay, that's, that's the sort of person that, that's going to, be, going to be dangerous here. So he actually spends quite a bit of time in, in, this, in these verses. I'm going to bounce around a little bit because he keeps talking about it in different spots. But let me show you five characteristics. All right? So you can write down these five things or just follow along, just listen along. But he, there's at least five characteristics here of, of false teachers. So the first one is that they are brazen brazen, he says. Uh, he, he doesn't use that word. That's my summary of what he does say. So verse 10, he says, bold and willful, bold and willful. They do not tremble. The they is the false teachers he was talking about at the conclusion of the previous, uh, previous chapter, or excuse me, previous uh, sentence. Uh, he says, bold and willful. These false teachers do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay. Uh, right away, we run into one of our sticky, uh, our sticky issues. There, there are actually a handful of, of tricky interpretation questions in this chapter, things where you read it and you scratch your head and you say, what does that mean? <laughs> What's he talking about there? Uh, this is one of them. This is one of the trickiest ones. Who are the glorious ones? All right, so we, you know, blaspheme means to speak against someone in a, in a disrespectful or um, even worse than that sort of a way. Uh, but who, who are we even talking about? Who are the glorious ones? There are a bunch of options. Actually, there are a handful. It's not a lot of options, but there's a handful of options. Uh, some people suggest, for example, that it could be church leaders. 
um, that, it, that it's kind of a fancy term for church leaders. That would make some sense because he was just talking about the denial of authority in the last verse, uh, except I don't, I'm not convinced by that one. I don't think it's, it's church leaders. That's a weird way to talk about church leaders. Uh, it makes much more sense to see these uh, as angelic beings. So he says, they bold and willful, they do not tremble, the blaspheme, uh, the glorious ones. He's talking about, I would argue, fallen angels. He, they, they blaspheme fallen angels, which you say, well, that's weird. Why, why is that a problem to say nasty things about false angels? But, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, he, they blaspheme fallen angels. And so we actually are, it's the people, the people, they're not people, the beings we were told about in verse 4, which I skipped last week, but told you I'd come back to it. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, uh, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So God did not spare angels. So he's talking there. There's actually a couple of options with that one. Uh, some people would say that he's talking about a passage in Genesis 6. So there's a passage in Genesis 6 where... Uh, the sons, of, the sons of God went to the, the, and took daughters of men for themselves as, as wives, it says. Some people will interpret that passage to say that angels were marrying human women. Um, I, not, I don't like that interpretation. It seems to not go with what Jesus says, where he says angels can't give and take in marriage. Um, it, I, and so, but some would say, just so you know, some people would say that Peter's talking about that Genesis 6 passage. The other way to take Peter is to take Peter as referring to the fall of Satan. And so at some point in time past, uh, the, the devil, the man, the, the being we now call the devil, Lucifer is how he was created. He was a good angel, and he led a third of the angelic hosts in rebellion against God, and God stopped them. That's what this passage is talking about in verse 4. God did not spare those angels when they sinned, but rather he, he stopped them. He, he, he put an end to their rebellion, and he, he, he put them under punishment. Now, the devil still has some influence in the world, but he's under, uh, under the judgment of God's punishment. Um, that's what all of that is talking about. So when, when Peter says in verse uh, 10 that they did not tremble to blaspheme the angels, I think there's a little bit, we're reading between the lines a little bit here, but what he's saying is that they're not taking evil seriously, right? And you, we, you know of, of uh, movements to today that would say this sort of thing. Oh, there's no, there's no spirit world. You don't have to worry about, you know, there's no devil. There's no, that's just a, a fantasy that, you know, psychologists came up with or, you know, you know people just kind of, to, to, a way to process their fears. There's not really a devil. There's not really evil beings. Even evil, evil's just a moral construct. It's just a social thing. Uh, I think that's the kind of thing that Peter is talking about here. Those are modern uh, versions of the sort of thing he's talking about here. They're not taking evil power seriously. Unlike the angels, he says in verse 11, who do take it seriously, right? They do take it seriously because they know how serious it is uh, because they were there and they know the reality of it. So, so it's that sort of an idea. And so they're back to our, you know, specifically on the false teachers, they're brazen, they're bold, they're, they're reckless even in the things that they say and the things that they do. So, um, so that's one. They're, they're brazen. They're arrogant. They claim to know things that, they, that are not true and that they themselves do not actually have a right to know. Uh, so uh, the, another, the next one is irrational. They're irrational. 
and that's verse 12. And he actually says it's more than irrational. They're irrational like animals. Listen to this. Uh, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. Strong language. Peter is not pulling his punches in this whole thing. He's not, uh, he's not kind of being polite, right? He says they're a bunch of animals, right? They're, they're irrational like animals. That's the comparison. So he's not denying their humanity, but he's saying that spiritually speaking, these false teachers who are coming in, teaching false things about Jesus, promoting behavior that the Bible says we shouldn't do, uh, they are spiritually speaking no better than animals. They're like beasts. And so he says they're driven by their instincts, right? What are, what, you know, they're, they're, they're just to be caught and destroyed. So it's this very uh, plain, even blunt description of those who would promote this kind of stuff. Uh, he, he goes back to that idea of blaspheming again. They're, they're, um, they blaspheme about things they do not understand. This seems to be a very important one uh, to, to Peter, this idea that somebody claims to know things that the Bible doesn't teach are true, that they're, they're blaspheming those things. Uh, and uh, this idea of being like irrational like animals, he actually comes back to it in verse 22. It's the last verse in the chapter. Uh, and so it, there's this thread that runs through about how it's, it's almost this beast-like irrationality. Uh, the dog returns, they've become like this. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Uh, most false teachers clean up real nice on the outside, right? They look good on the outside, but don't be, don't be fooled, he says. Don't be fooled. From a spiritual perspective, they're, they're, they're no better than the dirtiest animals. And that's really what he's doing there uh, with apologies to, to modern dog lovers. Uh, the, the, he, he says dog... So in his context, dogs and pigs are both ceremonially unclean animals. In Judaism, they're both unclean animals. Um, and the dogs, people didn't really... They didn't domesticate dogs as pets in that part of the world. All you would have are, are wild dogs that roamed and ate garbage and attacked people and, and that sort of thing. And so they're both unclean animals that you're supposed to avoid. And, and so he says, uh, that's what false teachers are like. They're, they're unclean. And quite honestly, those, that verse 22, it's kind of disgusting, right? And again, with apologies to the dog lovers, but you know your dog will do that. You know he does. And, and so that's just, that's just what, you know, and, and false teachers, it's, it's, it's not a flattering picture here, right? They're irrational like animals, he says. Uh, another one, I don't, these all kind of build on each other. They, they weave among each other. Uh, a third characteristic he gives us is uh, shameless. They are, they're without shame in the way they, they go after God's people and the way they promote these things that are bad for us. And so verse 13, he says, they, they count it pleasure to revel, it's this idea of like, you know, like celebrating raucously, to revel in the daytime. Uh, they parade it, they shout it, they, you know, they, they put billboards up promoting it. Uh, they revel it in the daytime where everybody can see it. And then he goes on, there are blots and blemishes, and then he repeats this word, reveling, uh, celebrating their deceptions. And what's worse, he says, they're doing it in the church. They're doing it in the midst of God's people. Uh, and and that, that's this feast he's talking about. Say, feast, what feast is he talking about when he says, when they, while they feast with you? The feast he's talking about is the, is the, Euch is the, the Eucharist, it's communion. And so it's, it's church. He's saying they're there with you 
pretending to be one of you. They're there uh, claiming to be a part of your fellowship. They're even taking communion with you. And yet, as they do so, they're promoting all of this stuff that God tells us not to do. And so, uh, and so it's shameless. It's without shame. There, there's no sense of remorse. There's a, just an, a complete uh, shamelessness about promoting this stuff. And then this next one. This, uh, I think shameless flows right into this one. Uh, they are insatiable, is, is another description Peter gives us here. It's, it's in verse 14. And you heard it when Laura read it before. I mean, he just stacks it up. Um, they, they count it pleasure to revel. They're blots and blemishes. They have eyes, verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable, insatiable for sin. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, but it goes through the whole chapter, so we come back to it again today. Uh, it's not true in every case, but a lot of the time, many times, maybe even oftentimes, false teaching, both, and you'll see this in the Old Testament too, many times false teaching promotes sexual sin. So often the two go together. And there's, there's, you can always, we, you know, we could talk about exceptions. Sometimes there's very legalistic strains that promote almost an asceticism, which is, which is dangerous. But, but, uh, but, but it's, those are exceptions that prove the rule. Because what you see is so often false teaching about Jesus and about how God wants us to live promotes sensuality. Uh, Peter talks about this. And again, he's not going to dance around the issue. He says, their eyes are full of adultery insatiable for sin and that's not two different things it's it's um it's a it's a it's a use of parallelism where the second phrase explains the the first and so they are insatiable for sexual sin is what he's saying so there's an insatiableness for it uh just can't get enough is, is the idea and so we see this right they saw it then we see it today they they promote adultery they promote homosexuality they promote promiscuity they promote pornography they promote uh, open marriages and multiple partners and all this kind of stuff that we we that increasingly gets talked about and promoted in our culture and and that's that, that's this idea of, of false teachers right false it, it's bad enough when it comes from the world but what what peter's warning us against is when that comes from 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 people who are claiming to be uh, followers of of the lord people who claim to believe god and so there's there's this idea of insatiableness and then the last one Peter identifies for us is greed, uh, greedy. The, the last, uh, false teachers are greedy uh, a lot of times. And, and like I say, with all of these, it might, just, might be that somebody's teaching accurately and just has a big sin problem that he or she needs to repent of. But, but when you see these kind of things, pay close attention because you're probably dealing, you may well be dealing with, with false, false teaching. So greed, and uh, he says in verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed, uh, we actually talked about this last week when we looked at verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you. And, and like we said last week, I'll say it again today, we still, they dealt with it then, we deal with it now. A lot of times, false teachers will have an outsized obsession with money. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll talk about Jesus for five minutes and, and ask you, spend the next 15 asking for money. That sort of a thing. And so there's an outsized obsession with money and prosperity. And then Peter gives us a biblical example, uh, lots of biblical examples in, in this letter as well as in Jude. When we get to it, you'll see. Um, he gives us the example of Balaam. Uh, and so Balaam, that's verse 15, he mentions that. Uh, forsaking the right way, so they have hearts trained in greed. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. 
Uh, we're not going to take the time. Uh, this is probably one of those unanswered questions. Uh, you say, who's Balaam? You can read about Balaam in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, verse, uh, chapters 22, 23, and 24. Uh, he's the guy whose donkey was smarter than he was. The, uh, the Holy Spirit opens the donkey to speak the truth when the prophet, who should be speaking the truth, is not speaking the truth. And so again, you have another animal thing. Peter's all, all about the animal uh, connections in this passage. We have an animal who's smarter than the human being. Uh, but, but it's that story. And rather than tell that whole story, we'll content ourselves with Peter's summary. And Peter's summary of the Balaam story is that it was about greed. He loved gain from wrongdoing more than he loved doing the right thing. Right? He, he, you know, if I can make some money doing the wrong thing, that's more important to me than not making some money and doing the right thing. That was Balaam's attitude. Peter says. And that's what we see with false teachers a lot of times. They're, they're greedy, just like Balaam. So it's not an exhaustive list, and it's not exhaustive, it's not comprehensive. There's other things we could talk about, and like I say, sometimes faithful uh, teachers of, of accurate doctrine will become sinful, will fall into sin. They need to repent. If they don't repent, they need to be removed. Uh, but a lot of times when we see these things, what we're seeing are false teachers in action. So, so that's what's, what's going on there. That's what they're like. All right, that's the first defense. Know, know what you're dealing with. Know, know the enemy, if you, if you will. Uh, number two, the second defense that the, Peter walks us through in this passage is to know who they target. All right, so we're going to defend ourselves. We need to know who's in danger here. So who's in the crosshairs? Who do false teachers especially like to target? Now, they'll go after anyone, but there's someone they especially like to target, Peter warns us. The ones they especially like to target are the vulnerable, the spiritually vulnerable. Have you ever watched one of those, um, like a documentary or a nature video where they'll show lions hunting? Right? So you've got lions, maybe a couple of lions, it's a pair of lions, and they're out and they're hunting, catch something for dinner, and, and they're stalking this herd of antelope or wildebeest, you know, these creatures that are much bigger than they are. Which animal do the lions target? They target the weak ones, right? They don't go after the big bull. I mean, maybe they should go after the big bull. I mean, he's, you know, there's enough meat to eat for six months, right? But, but that's not what they go after. Those lions will single out the weakest ones. And so they'll, they'll look, the, the one that maybe hurt its leg and it's, it's limping or, or one of the young ones, or sometimes they'll, they'll, I've seen, I know I've seen videos like this where, um, you know, like uh, they'll sit there and wait until a mother, uh, a mother cow g finishes giving birth and then they'll come in while she's still recovering and they'll, they'll take that calf away. It's, that's what they'll do. They attack the ones that are the most vulnerable. And that, Peter says, is what false teachers do. They go after the vulnerable ones. Verse 14, uh, he says, uh, they entice unsteady souls. They go after the weak ones, he says. See, what he's... I, I said this last week, let me say it again. The false teachers are, in the way he describes them, they are in the category of unbelievers. They are not believers, right? So they, they, they join you in your feast, they say they're believers, but they don't believe the things that make someone a believer. So we're not talking about, like, this is why we talked about this last week. We're not talking about a brother in Christ who understands Jesus, holds to the word, but has a different interpretation on the timing of the second coming or something like that. We're talking about people who, who are not saved and the ones who are the ones they're going after are ones who are saved, and they're trying to get them to uh, join them, 
or almost as good, just sin against God, right? So they're, they're trying to deceive genuine Christians, the ones that are vulnerable. And so he talks about this in verse 14. Uh, they entice unsteady souls. And so who's that? Well, it's the, it's the person who's struggling with grief. It's just sunk deep into a depression. That person is vulnerable. It's the, the poor person. It's the sick person. It's the person who's, who's perhaps been abused in, in, in her past, and, and so she's, she's open to, to being taken advantage of again. Uh, they'll go after the new believers, right? That idea of, of, uh, of the, the babies in the faith. They are vulnerable because they're young in the Lord, right? And we've, maybe all, a lot of us have seen people like this. They, somebody comes to the Lord, and, and he's excited about it. He's so, you know, just thrilled to, to have his eyes opened and, and to understand that his sins are forgiven and God has is, is, is welcomed him into his kingdom. Uh, and, and that person is so excited about following Jesus, but that person is vulnerable, right? Because he hasn't been discipled yet. There hasn't been any time yet to walk him through scripture and, and teach him how to pray and all those kinds of things. He, he's kind of like a, a wildebeest that's, you know, someday he's going to be big and strong, but right now he, he doesn't even know how to stand yet. And that's when the enemy comes in. That's when the enemy that's when the false teachers make their move. Uh, they're, they're unsteady souls. They're unsteady on their feet. Peter will come back to this again in verse 18. I think that's the right way. Verse 18 is another one of those scratch your head, what's he talking about? But I think the way to understand it is that he's talking about uh, younger believers. Here's what he says. Uh, he says, the false teachers attack those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And I think what he's talking about there are the new believers. They've just barely escaped. They were in the grip of, really, of the world. They were in the grip of the world, and now they've, they've just escaped. Like they've just stepped away from those errors. They've just accepted Jesus. They've just decided to give their life over to him. And that makes them vulnerable. That's, those are the ones the enemies, the, those false teachers are going to go after. Uh, when, uh, <clears throat> when we uh, did the Will Graham outreach a year ago, some of you will remember this, I think it was just a year ago, uh, we, we, we participated in a statewide, statewide outreach here in, in Iowa where the Billy Graham Association sent one of their um, evangelists, Will Graham, I think he's Billy Graham's grandson, came to Iowa and he did a series of meetings out in Des Moines. And we participated in that as a church. We were kind of out here in, in, in our part of the state but we did some of the trainings here. And I remember when our, one of the nights our trainer was here offering that training, uh, he told us they deal with this all the time. It's actually one of the biggest problems they face when, when the Billy Graham Association does these crusades. And it's been true for decades. Back when Billy Graham was preaching at the height of his thing, they dealt with the same issue. Uh, they, would, they would present the gospel. People would respond to the gospel. They'd come forward. Uh, there would be counselors up front. Some of you participated in that. Uh, you would, you know, they'd, they'd pray with that person. They'd walk them through a little booklet, show them how, what it means to follow Jesus, give them the basics. They'd hand them that booklet. They'd pray with them. They'd say, listen, somebody from a church is going to call you in the next 48 hours to, to, be, to begin to follow up, invite you to their church, make sure you take the call. And then they'd send them out. And they go out and they leave and they're excited. They're so happy. Look at what they've found. They found Jesus and they go out into the parking lot. They're trying to find their car and they start running into these other people who look a lot like the people they just had inside, but they're false teachers. The Graham Association said it's one of the biggest things they deal with is these people who have other ideas. A lot of times they'll come from some of the cults uh, and they will come in and try to catch these people because they're spiritually aware, they're open, they've got these new ideas, this Jesus thing. Well, let me tell you what it really means to follow Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus really was. And they'll start, and they'll, they'll, they, 
He won't literally pounce, but they will spiritually pounce on these people at these moments of vulnerability. So that's who they target. They, they target our children. They target the new believers. They target the undiscipled. They target uh, the, the, the poor and, the, and the, uh, the people who have not had that chance yet to go deeper uh, with the Lord and be discipled. That's why we need to protect ourselves and to protect them too. <clears throat> that brings us to the, the third defense that we see in this text. Uh, the third defense is to know how they attack. Right? So, so you need to know the strategies. You need to know what their strategy is if you're going to defend yourself and those who are entrusted to us. If we're going to defend them, we need to know how they attack. And what we see in this text, we're going to come, we talked about this, we raised the issue before, now we have to come back to it. The one Peter focuses on is they entice with pleasure. They entice with sinful pleasure. It's, it's probably not the only one. We could go to other texts and talk about other ones, but this text focuses on that enticement. Uh, last week we said that false teaching is uh, deceptive by its very nature. It's inherently deceptive. Verse 1, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, he said. <clears throat> now Peter elaborates on that. Like he kind of, he didn't, he didn't drop it per se, but he didn't really expand on it. He, he expands on it a little more now. Verse 14, uh, it's, I read it before, they entice unsteady souls. So, so what are they doing to those vulnerable people, just beginning to learn how to stand? Well, they, they don't actually come in like a lion and pounce. Instead, they're more subtle. They entice. They entice, he says. He uses the same word in verse 18 with the same group of people. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping. This word entice means, uh, it's, it's the word you, you use this word with fishing, right? And so, you, you know, the, 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 the worm you put on the hook is the enticement. Or with trapping, right? So, so if you wanted to trap an animal, you, you would have some kind of bait that would attract the thing you're trying to catch. This word entice is the word you use. In the noun form, it's the enticement, it's the bait. Uh, the verb is, is to, to do it, to entice someone with bait. Um, when, uh, when I was a little boy, uh, my father um, trapped. He, was into, he, was, he would trap like raccoons, uh, whatever he could, you know, coyote, coyotes. Uh, really, fox were, were what he wanted to get. I grew up in upstate New York, rural part, very wooded area of New York. And um, it was kind of his side hustle. Uh, he, <laughs> he had another job, but, but he actually could make, back then, furs were worth something, and he could, uh, he could make pretty good money, actually, with, with trapping. And so I would go out with him sometimes to walk. You know, as an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, you're interested in this stuff. And uh, I remember, you know, he would, he, would, he would put the traps out. But to lure, to try to get that fox, that nice $80 pelt, to come, uh, my apologies to those who are offended by that kind of thing, but anyway, that's how it was. Um, he would use uh, these baits. And so I remember these little jars, and they would have, they would have like these droppers. So you would pull almost like an eydropper sort of a thing. And, uh, and, and you just a few drops of that, that lure, that scent, on the, on the area where the trap was, would be enough to bring that animal in. I remember as a, you know, you're like, oh, what does it smell like? And he'd give you a little bit, and you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. It really smelled horrible, but not if you're a fox. Right? Not if you're a, a male fox looking for a female fox. And that really, they were, they were pheromones. They were that kind of thing to attract that animal. But when that animal was attracted by that enticement that he wanted so much, that was going to be the end of him, right? That was, that was it for that fox. That's what, we've, what we got here, right? That's what false teachers do. They entice. They entice people with bait. And 
it's a very effective bait. It's the bait of, of sexual pleasure, right? It's, it's very effective. Um, we, we said a minute ago, sexuality is... Uh, uh, well, I didn't say it. I was going to say it, and I dropped it out of my notes, but I'll say it now. Uh, sexuality is a, a good gift from God, right? So when we start talking about sexuality, it's always important to remember, we're not saying that sex is bad. Sex is a good thing. It's a good gift from God when it is experienced and enjoyed the way he created it. Uh, in the, the context of the covenant of marriage between one man and one, between a husband and a wife, right? Between a man and a woman in the context of their marriage. In that context, it's an, ex- it's an exceedingly good gift. Outside of that is off limits, God says. And it's precisely because of this kind of a stuff, right? And so because it's good, because it's a good gift, it, it, it's, it's the best gifts that make the best traps, right? When, when turned against us. And so that's what he says false teachers will do. They use the lure of sexual pleasure to lead vulnerable Christians, weak Christians, astray. I think this is one of the biggest problems the church faces today. I, I know it's sometimes hard to sift through some of Peter's language, and we'll run to the same issue with, with Jude, some of their pictures, but it's such a timely issue because this, I think the American church and the global churches is dealing with this in such a big way. Uh, vulnerable Christians are being lured away by the enticements of the flesh, right? By, by, by sexual pleasure in all these different kinds of forms. And, 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 and not just the experience thereof, but, but the, now the, this whole idea of identity uh, comes into play. And so believers are being lured away by, uh, by pornography, uh, by sexual permissiveness, by, uh, by really being urged to indulge in same-sex attraction and, and the gender confusion issues, these things that really seem to dominate so much of the discussion these days in our contemporary culture. And it's not, the, the greater problem we face is that it's not just that these enticements are coming from the world. Right? You almost, you know, when you, you, you expect it to come from the, the, the ones you know aren't on your side in this stuff. But when it starts coming from those who say that they're believers, when it starts coming from, from people from within the church and the Christian community, that's when uh, we really need to be on our guard and, and, and where it's so dangerous. And we see this, you know, we'll see authors, we'll see influencers, we'll see kind of, you know, uh, Christian celebrities who really do seem to be genuine believers, right? You, you, you look and, and they'll say the right things about Jesus and the right things about salvation and grace and how that all works and their Instagram feeds will be filled with inspirational Bible verses and you're happy to click the little heart if you're on, if you're on Instagram. But then, then some, some, someone will ask them or they'll just decide to go ahead and tell you, uh, you know, well, God approves of homosexual behavior. God, God's okay with that. You know, God made you that way. You wouldn't have those feelings if God didn't make you. Don't, don't, let's not talk about sin. That, that's not the issue. It, you wouldn't have that feeling if God didn't make you that way. Or, or they'll, you know, they'll approve of serial monogamy. That one's right up there, right? It, it's easy to kind of pick on same-sex attraction for, for most of us here, but, but how about serial monogamy? Right? That one's oh so popular. Right? It doesn't matter how many people you sleep with as long as you're faithful to the one you're sleeping with now. Right? That, that, I mean, that is the ethic of our day. Right? Oh, he cheated on his girlfriend, that dirty dog. But if he breaks up with her and he's sleeping with a different person six weeks later or two weeks later, that's perfectly okay. That, that's fine. So serial monogamy, uh, same thing. And, and that gets pushed even from within people in the sort of position I occupy, uh, that I occupy. And it's, it's very dangerous to us. And I said this last week, it sounds good, right? It makes sense in a certain sense. 
But the reality of it is that it hurts people. See, this is where he, he we talked about the destructiveness last week. I guess we'll come back to it a little bit more in just a moment. Uh, but, but Peter says it now. He says, it promises freedom, right? It promises freedom. Sleep with whoever you want. Sex is good, and you can do it with anyone you want, says the modern ethos, even sometimes from within the church. It promises freedom. But in fact, Peter says, and you say, oh, he's old-fashioned. No, he's not old-fashioned. They were even more promiscuous than we are in his day. Uh, No, it enslaves, Peter says. It enslaves. Verse 19, just so we're reading his words, not mine. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And then he he uses these other pictures. I think it's two verses earlier. Waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. That's another one of those things you say, what are you talking about, Peter? Those are both pictures of how it doesn't actually satisfy, right? So, So all of these promises get made with all of this stuff, but the reality is they're waterless springs, he says. You know, imagine you're hiking through a desert and you, maybe you've got a map and the map says, one, we go over this hill and we come down and there's a wonderful spring there. Right? There's a spring on the map. I can't wait to get over the top of this hill so we can fill, refill our water bottles and drink from this spring. And you go over the top and you look down and it's a waterless spring. It's dry. It's just sand. There's, you can tell there used to be water, but there's no water now. It's a waterless spring. There's no satisfaction to be found there. It promises satisfaction. It promises freedom, but it has none to offer. Mists driven by a storm. I was thinking, I think it's, it's this idea of a rainstorm that doesn't actually give any rain. Right? We get those sometimes. In fact, I think we had one this past week where uh, I was at the gym one morning and these two older men who both clearly had a farming background were joking with each other. And one of them's like, how, you know, how much rain did you get? And your, your, uh, your rain gauge from that rain we had. And he's like, well, if I could have got all the drops in one place, it would have been a lot. You know, it's kind of his joke. And because there wasn't any actual water, even though everything looked wet, there had been no actual rain that had done anything. It's, it's a mist driven by a storm. There's no actual satisfaction there. And so it promises all this freedom. It promises all this pleasure. It promises liberation, but it has nothing to offer. And that's the enticement. That's, the, he, that's how we avoid the enticement is knowing that. But you've got to know the strategies. You've got to know the tactics that they're coming at us with. Finally, the fourth... Uh, the fourth defense is to know where it's headed. Know where they're headed. We need to remember that part, where false teachers are headed if they do not repent. Peter doesn't talk about it a whole lot, but I have a duty to remind us all that there's, an op- there's always the option for, repent- for repentance. Right? They can come back. Right? Somebody can come back. There's always that. Uh, and so, but if, if they don't, if we don't uh, turn back from it, 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 leads, uh, it leads to destruction. And that's actually where, that's where we're headed. Where, it is, where, is, where are they headed? They're headed for the destruction of, of judgment. That's his main point in uh, last week's passage. And I, I touched on it, but just to, to look at it again a little more closely, just because I promised we would. Um, in, in, in so verses 4 through 10, he's building the case using biblical examples. This is why we need to know our Bibles. <laughs> He builds the case using biblical examples that God does judge sin. Maybe not right away, but he always judges unless there's repentance. And so verse 4, he talks about those fallen angels. When Satan led a rebellion, when Satan led a rebellion against God and he led a third of the angels against God, God did not just kind of say, eh, I'm sure he didn't mean it. I'm sure if I give Lucifer a couple thousand years, he'll come around, he'll see better, he'll do better next time. 
Uh, that is not what God did. Uh, Peter says, no, he cast them into hell. He committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, verse 4, uh, to be kept until the judgment. Um, and then he gives another example. He says the same thing with Noah and the flood, right? Genesis, you can read about it. I won't turn there, but Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. Uh, it's the story of Noah and the ark. The entire world became so evil that there was just one family left. The, the family of Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, they were the only people who were even close to righteous. Uh, they weren't perfect either. You see that after the flood ends. But, but uh, they were righteous. They were followers of the Lord. And so God said, okay, I'm going to take those eight. I'm going to put them in this box. I'm going to preserve them, and everyone else is gone. God judged them. Their sin led to judgment. Sure, uh, sure, as, sure as the sun comes up tomorrow. Uh, verse 6, same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, we could take a lot of time and read through these passages. Uh, Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Uh, the short version of the story is that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah became thoroughly wicked. The, the cities were just wicked, wicked places. They make, they'd make uh, Las Vegas look like a, you know, a Boy Scout jamboree. I mean, just, it, was, it was thoroughly wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it wasn't, it wasn't just sexual sin. That's usually what we associate with Sodom and Gomorrah, but, but there are other passages in the prophets that talk about violence, injustice, and idolatry. There was a lot of wickedness going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Peter reminds us, God judged them. He poured fire down from earth and he reduced them to ashes. And so again, uh, and, and then Peter sums that all up in verse 9. If God did all that to those people, uh, he'll do the same thing to the false teachers we face today. Peter's words, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God will judge them. That's why, he, and that, that theme, it's mostly in last week's passage, but it carries into this week's verse 14. You heard it before. Uh, he calls them accursed children. Did you catch that close to the end of verse 14? Accursed children. It sounds like it's an insult, right? Like it's almost like he's swearing or something, but it's not an insult. That is a theologically accurate description of where they're headed. They are under God's curse because of what they've been denying about Jesus and what they've been promoting to, to, to believers. They are under God's curse. They're accursed children. And then he says a similar thing in verse 17, the gloom of utter darkness, uh, hell has been reserved for them. So those false teachers, unless they repent, if they do not repent, they will spend eternity in hell, he says. He couldn't be more plain about that. And so, how does this help us? Right? Because I said before, I don't think Peter writes this letter to get the false teachers to change their minds. It may well be that some did, but it's pretty clear, actually, that what he's writing to is believers, you and me, so that we read this and we know how to protect ourselves. So how does this last one, how does remembering where it's headed help us pr protect ourselves? And I think it protects us, it helps us protect ourselves by, by reminding us that we don't want to go there, right? We don't want to go there. Following the false teachers, people who promote stuff that's against the Bible, do deny the truth about Jesus, following those people is like following the driver of a car in front of you who's going over a cliff. Right? Imagine you're visiting the, the Grand Canyon and you see this, the car in front of you, the SUV in front of you, they're headed straight for the cliff. And you can see it, the signs are there, you know, 1,000 feet and you're going over the edge. Uh, you, and you could follow that car, you could be like, well, he must know where he's going, you know, his car's nicer than my car, I guess I'll just follow him over. Uh, he's dressed real nice, I'll just follow him over. Uh, you could do that, <laughs> or you could see the sign that says danger, 200 feet, hit the brakes, pull over to the side, and, and not follow that person 
over the edge. And I think that's, that's why this is a warning, right? You wouldn't follow that driver over the edge of the canyon. Don't follow the false teachers over the edge of the canyon either. Uh, instead, remember that God will. I mean, that, it, Peter emphasizes it so much in this chapter. God will hold them to account. He might not do it today, but he will hold them account. So don't follow them. Don't follow them over the cliff. What, they, what they're offering may be appealing, right? It goes back to that enticement. Some, it is appealing. It is appealing sometimes. But in the end, it leads to destruction, both in this life and in the one to come. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for um, speaking, speaking strongly to us. I thank you for treating us like, uh, like grown-ups. <laughs> A passage like this, it's, it's like that. It's like one of those things where you, 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 you say, here's some serious stuff now. Here's some serious things that my people need to think about. And uh, I pray you'd help us to have that mentality about it. Uh, help us to, to take these things seriously, to be serious about protecting our church, about our families, about our own hearts, uh, not in a pharisaical way where we become heresy hunters, but where we are, are faithful to you, where we keep our eyes on Jesus, where we are encouraging and holding up and warning one another uh, and, uh, and helping one another follow after you, Jesus. Uh, do protect us, protect your church, protect our children, protect uh, our doctrine here locally, Lord. Help us to be faithful to the scriptures. And uh, in all of it, we would pray that Jesus Christ would be praised. It's in his name we pray. Amen.